Joe, welcome to the Bitcoin Source. Can we start things off by you introducing yourself to the audience and to the world? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat today. My name is Joe Consorti. I'm a markets researcher, uh, formerly a University of Vermont student. I decided to graduate a year early, uh, so that way I could begin working in Bitcoin. I've been studying markets for upwards of five years now. I took up an interest in Bitcoin uh, my second to last year of college and uh, fell down the rabbit hole and started folding it into my markets analysis. And uh, really, since then, I haven't looked back. Um, I take a, a pretty heavy focus on the money markets. Um, rates lead a lot of my thinking. Um, obviously, the regime we're in now is uh, is pretty pretty good to be a rates analyst. You get to tell people what's wrong with all of this rates action, um, why is everything going parabolic, and uh, what it all means for Bitcoin. So it's very, very interesting. Um, I work at a markets research firm uh, called The Bitcoin Layer with Nick Batia, the author of Layer Money, the book you could see right there over my shoulder. And uh, essentially, we cover Bitcoin through a global macro lens. Um, we do that through our Substack newsletter, as well as on our YouTube channel, uh, which we publish uh, both uh, on very regularly. We have five pieces of content every single week, as well as a, a morning show that I do on uh, markets and macro content. And that's essentially it. I spend uh, a lot of my time analyzing markets and essentially disseminating all of the relevant information to viewers. So they can uh, best navigate the, uh, the market cycle. What you do in the space is so crucial and critical. And a lot of people, I feel like it's like I'm a writer by trade, right? So I write a lot of Bitcoin content and things of that nature. And I feel like the analysts, the guys that research the market, the curves, the risks, they kind of get like the colder end of the shoulder in the space, unless you're really into trading heavy or investing. So, you know, this conversation is going to be really um, fun to really unpack. So, Joe, uh, the question I usually ask people on the show, like one of the first questions I ask people is, you know, the sources of your Bitcoin knowledge. So for example, you know, were there any books, courses, conferences, or even people in the space that really inspired you, orange pilled you and allowed you to become a better Bitcoiner? So could you kind of like break down some of those experiences or any books that you want to rattle off to the audience? Most definitely. I love that question. I love it for a couple of reasons. Um, the first reason is I, I was orange pilled by a buddy in college. Um, his name is Tyler LaRoche. He works at Bitcoin Magazine now. Everyone should give him a follow. Um, very, very bright guy. And him and I were in a whole host of classes together. We got sent home for school uh, from school because of COVID. Um, and that was over spring break, unfortunately. So freshman year, spring break, I had only taken an overnight bag from school because I figured I'd be able to get uh, all my stuff the next week. Because uh, as far as my knowledge, it was spring break. I was going to Hampton Beach, New Hampshire, and, and living it up for the weekend, um, or for the week, rather. And, uh, and then COVID hit on a Tuesday, and they said, you can't come back to the dorms and get your stuff. So that was completely unbelievable. Um, I left my computer up there, so I had to get a new computer. Thankfully, everything was on Google Drive. And uh, essentially, I had, at that point, an extreme level of uh, disdain for the people who had the ability to do this and, and have this sort of top-down overarching rule. And, um, you know, Tyler, one of my buddies, the following year, not the following year, rather, but the, the later on that year, October, November timeframe, this is 2020. Um, he had started sending me a few articles. Um, the first one was the bullish case for Bitcoin by Vijay Boyapati, um, which I have in book form now on my uh, shelf back there. I'd highly recommend everybody to read that. Um, the Masters and Slaves of Money by, by uh, Robert Breedlove. And um, that is also a must read, I think. I think both of those things folded my thinking in such a way um, that made me understand Bitcoin as uh, sort of an absolute necessity in a way. And uh, from there, I started folding it into my uh, understanding of markets and, um, you know, sort of beginning to understand it as debasement insurance. 
uh, you know, this absolutely scarce instrument that individuals, that companies, that sovereigns, they can all hold, uh, you know, in reserve on their balance sheet and their bank account. Um, and it could protect them from this extreme credit expansion that we experience. We ex experience um, obviously extreme credit expansion uh, from a central authority. You know, for 14 plus years, we've had ZERP, zero interest rate policy uh, globally. Um, you know, some places it's been worse than others, but basically people have been able to borrow uh, for nothing. And as a function of that, there is now this deep rooted misallocation of capital throughout the entire financial system. And every single person on the planet, their money has been debased. Whenever there is a crisis that comes around, the solution is immediately easing monetary policy, as opposed to allowing the free market to sort itself out, allowing inefficiencies to correct, uh, allowing the least efficient aspects of the market to be pruned, um, and, and, and allowing free market solutions to bubble to the surface. Um, instead, we intervene. Um, and the and uh, ultimately, the release valve is always the United States dollar. And so over the last two years, uh, almost two years to the day, I've been folding Bitcoin into my thinking. <clears throat> and right around last year, uh, I started actually actively tweeting uh, my, my Bitcoin, my markets research, and uh, and it's gone extremely well. And so Kyle LaRoche from Bitcoin Magazine, um, as well as uh, Dylan McClare, who also works at Bitcoin Magazine, uh, have been pivotal in my thinking. And that obviously you've got your must reads, you're, you're the Bitcoin standard, you're you know, the price of tomorrow, the fiat standard, layered money. Uh, all of those have been extremely critical into the way that, way that I think. Um, and uh, in terms of macro knowledge as well, the other book that I have that has the, the that's facing out um, principles for navigating big debt crisis that is also uh, pretty pivotal to my thinking. So every single book here that I have with the cover facing out, absolute must reads. Um, I think especially layered money too. Um, no, I know layered money is an extremely popular book. I highly recommend anybody to go ahead and read the Sailor Academy course Econ 101. You actually get a free copy of the book uh, at the very end in PDF format. So I highly recommend anybody to read it. It's sort of analogizes a lot of monetary history and how Bitcoin is akin to a base layer money like U.S. Treasuries, like gold, um, and that's sort of how it can monetize to get there. So those are those are sort of, uh, that's my introduction to Bitcoin. Those are the people who introduced me. And those are some of the books that I have. This kind of leads into my, my next question, which is, I remember you speaking about on a previous interview that the Fed will cause a recession, which most people in the know, most Bitcoiners could you know, pretty much agree. And you see the, the runaway printing, you see the um, price of inflation increasing every day. It seems like they're changing the interest rate, you know, at a whim. And my question to you, Joe, is, is that do you think it's still worth it to invest in Bitcoin during the bear market amidst rising inflation? Um, I'll break it down into sort of the macro environment and then whether or not I think it makes sense to be scaling into Bitcoin here. The short answer is yes, um, it, it makes sense to be scaling into Bitcoin. It has since uh, since June, since we started seeing this unwind, um, we're at an extremely healthy floor right now in terms of Bitcoin's price. And I'll explain why I believe that. Um, so when it comes to the macro environment, obviously we have this extreme inflation. And I don't necessarily believe that the solution to unbelievably low interest rates is the most aggressive hiking regime we've ever witnessed um, on United States soil until something pops, whether it's risk markets, um, you know, uh, financial markets that causes inflation to come down, um, the housing market. Ultimately, what the Fed's trying to do is there's this perceived trade-off between unemployment and inflation. Um, it's called the Phillips curve. But the Phillips curve, the only reason that it is a somewhat valid economic model is because of centrally planned interest rates. The only reason the labor market gets so tight 
that it has to be traded off with, uh, you know, um, in order to unwind extremely high inflation, you have to break the labor market. The only reason that that's true is because rates are artificially held at extremely artificially low levels. The economy is flooded with cheap debt and then jobs are created based on the assumption that debt can continue to be rolled at that level. That is the reason that there's a trade-off between a tight labor market and high inflation. And that's what we're going through right now. And so if there weren't these, you know, these artificially low interest rates that were flooding the economy with debt, getting people jobs under the supposition that uh, the companies that hired them would be able to roll their debt at these really low levels, you wouldn't have this situation. But unfortunately, it's the situation that we find ourselves in now. Um, what that means, the Fed is essentially trying to destroy demand in order to bring down inflation. They're doing this through, you know, aggressively raising interest rates. They have interest rate monetary policy and quantitative easing. Those are sort of the only two things they have in their arsenal. Um, with interest rate monetary policy, they control two rates, the federal funds rate, which is an interbank lending rate, um, and the discount rate, um, which is the rate at which people can park capital at the Fed for a, uh, a determined rate, and also the reverse repurchase agreement rate. Um, the reverse repo facility is essentially uh, a treasury collateralized lending service that the Fed provides. Um, collateralized with treasuries, people can park their reserves at the Fed overnight and then get a rate of return. And so those are the, those are the, that's essentially how the Fed sets monetary policy. They're raising this rate, um, they're discouraging lending, uh, they're sucking capital out of the market, they're slowing the rate of credit, and in doing so, other interest rates rise in sympathy. So you see bonds sell off United States treasuries all across the curve uh, from your lowest maturity to your highest maturity, sell off in expectation of rising rates. And uh, you also see it abroad, right? Not only with sovereign bonds, but also other central banks who have to tighten in sympathy with the Fed. Otherwise, uh, their currencies get debased into infinity. And so essentially there has to be sort of this coordinated dance of rates and of foreign exchange around the world. And the Fed leads that dance by raising their policy rate and everything, uh, you know, it sort of lifts all ships. They all have to rise in tandem. And so that's what we're experiencing now. We're experiencing this extreme liquidity contraction, right? That's the environment we're in now. Um, I feel because inflation is, of course, a rate of change, I feel at some point here, you know, we've seen peak inflation, core inflation is still a little bit stickier, uh, but I tend to believe that that will fall as well. Um, granted, we may end up normalizing inflation, you know, three, three and a half, four percent, a little bit higher than two percent, but that's okay. These are structural changes. I do think inflation is decelerating. Um, I do think financial markets turmoil abroad in Europe. They're experiencing dollar shortages over there right now. Uh, funding stress with bond yields that are rising even faster than over here. Um, I think that that will force the Fed's hand to probably pause its extremely aggressive rate hiking cycle, the most aggressive one since the 90s, sooner than they might like to. Um, so right around the start of that four handle, 425, 450, 4.5% uh, 4, 4, that is, on the federal funds rate, that's likely when they'll have to pause. Um, and they're also doing quantitative tightening. So what that means, they're allowing assets to mature off their balance sheet. And what this does is it removes reserves from uh, banks, right? So basically what happens with QE, QE is just an asset swap. So banks, uh, the United States Treasury is buying treasuries from banks and injecting them with bank reserves. And then QT is just letting those treasuries roll off of the Fed's balance sheet, which also makes those bank reserves disappear. And so it discourages lending from banks, which also slows the, the rate of credit, right? And so all of this is in an effort to bring down spending, to bring down inflation. Now, what gets hit during times like these? Interest rate sensitive assets, right? Um, and the most interest rate sensitive assets of all are risk assets. 
um, you know, assets that uh, like the NASDAQ that are incumbent on low interest rates, tech companies, they borrow quite a lot. Those are interest rate sensitive firms. Bitcoin is extremely interest rate sensitive, right? It is traded by those big market players the same way that you trade the NASDAQ. So as a result, in times like these where interest rates are rising through the roof, what sells off first? Well, Bitcoin is highly interest rate sensitive, right? It's high beta, right? So high beta to not just the market, but the NASDAQ. So, you know, it's, it's sort of a derivative of a tech stock almost, <clears throat> but it also has extremely low liquidity relative to the S&P 500, which is $34 trillion in size. Bitcoin is 400 billion, right? Or when it was 60,000, it was 800 billion, 1 trillion right around there. So it's very small. It's a fraction of a fraction of the size. And so during these liquidity contractions, money gets drawn from Bitcoin the same way it gets drawn from the S&P 500. But because of Bitcoin's extremely low liquidity profile, you see Bitcoin dump a whole lot more and a whole lot earlier than the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. Because since it's traded by these same big money market players, um, you see liquidity get drawn out from Bitcoin to a much more severe degree. And that's why you saw Bitcoin draw down 80%. Um, also, Bitcoin has much more leverage. There's a, obviously, there are more exotic instruments that exist in the wider, quote unquote, crypto ecosystem. I say it with quotes because I'm not going to dignify it by saying it uh, seriously in the wider crypto ecosystem. And that contagion of these exotic instruments during liquidity downturns also uh, hurts Bitcoin. Some people post Bitcoin as collateral for loans. They have to margin call their Bitcoin, yada, yada, yada. All this forced selling that occurs throughout the wider crypto ecosystem has impacted Bitcoin. So Bitcoin sort of led the NASDAQ in this huge sell-off as a result of rising rates. Um, and it also uh, led this extremely you know, large leverage unwind. Um, and you saw Bitcoin dry down 80%, right? So it leads other risk assets in all of these regards. And we've seen Bitcoin draw down uh, 75, 80% like we have in prior cycles. This 20K area has been held since June. Back in June over at the Bitcoin layer on Substack, we wrote about how we feel this is a solid range uh, for the bottom, right? We call this a bear market bottoming range for Bitcoin. Now, why do I say range? Uh, why, why do I enunciate range? Why do I, uh, you know, say that this, uh, you know, say it in quotes, the bear market bottoming range? Well, the bottoming range doesn't necessarily mean bottoming price, right? So this range has been extremely well defended because of Bitcoin's really low liquidity profile, only $400 billion. You know, a couple of key buyers and, and all of us in Confluence have been smash buying, right? And, and what matters more is the players who have extremely high uh, amounts of liquidity on their books that can buy Bitcoin and defend this level. This level is seen as historically cheap. And every single time, you know, we've tried to, tried to drop below it, the NASDAQ continues puking, the S&P 500 continues puking, Bitcoin is ranging, right? And so my general thesis since June has been because this is viewed as a historically cheap level and because this uh, of Bitcoin's extremely low liquidity profile, even as the Fed continues contracting liquidity globally um, and even as money gets sucked from virtually everything, this level can be defended on Bitcoin. And thus far, that thesis is held true. And so I feel this is a fantastic area to scale into Bitcoin. It does not preclude Bitcoin from a potential deflationary impulse and risk assets where the Fed over tightens, you know, some sort of bank contagion occurs, and, you know, money suddenly gets pulled from risk assets, sort of like we saw in 2020, in March 2020, um, when everything puked intraday and then rose in the month uh, to come. I don't think we're going to see something like that. Um, people's books are a lot healthier than they were in 2020. Uh, and also, I feel financial markets turmoil over in Europe is going to force the Fed's hand um, 
to be more easy with their monetary policy. Uh, and that will be supportive of risk assets. And I think that will occur before you see a dump, quote unquote, in risk assets. Um, but even if and when that day comes, I feel Bitcoin will continue to be supported at this 19 to 22K level, like it has been for the last uh, last three months. So not financial advice, of course, but that's sort of how I'm tying my macro thinking into my uh, my thinking about Bitcoin as of right now. Yeah, that was great. And there's so much to unpack there. There's a couple of things and it's like a couple of segues too of some things you mentioned that I'll you know, continue in the show. But one of the things that I really want to talk about is you mentioned parking capital. And I want to speak briefly about earning yield on the Lightning Network. So for a lot of people, the Lightning Network is still pretty new. Um, you know, Cash App just opened up layer one, two, and three, which is incredible. So I think more people will realize the power of the Bitcoin Lightning Network. And I know that's your wheelhouse and kind of what you do a lot of at the Bitcoin layer. My question to you is, Joe, is what is a Lightning Network bank? And you know, the benefits of utilizing something like a network, a Lightning Network Bank, for example, across channels uh, versus, you know, using a traditional bank payment rail. So how would that be beneficial to people that are investing, trading, or actually just looking for open liquidity that might be flummoxed on, you know, should I use Lightning or should I just go with the traditional rails that I've been using since the time of Memorial? For sure. That's an awesome question. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, I'm really happy that over at the Bitcoin layer, we've got a platform to talk about all the, the ideas that these developers are bringing to light. Uh, I'm not a developer by any means, but what I aim to do is fold in the concepts that these new technologies bring to the fore and fold them into traditional finance thinking so that people can more easily understand them. And when it comes to Lightning, there are a slew of very, very cool developments. Um, essentially, when we talk about earning a native yield, um, on the Lightning Network, you're earning an active yield, right? Um, so a yield is just your rate of return, right? Divided by your price, right? Uh, divided by the amount of liquidity that you've put up. Let's say you've got a Bitcoin in the Lightning Network and you're earning X amount of Satoshis Essentially, those satoshis divided by your amount of Bitcoin in the Lightning Network would be your yield, but it is an actively generated yield. The, the word yield is sort of like a potty mouth term over the last year because people have come to understand yield is just printed tokens. Um, people park their money in, you know, uh, Ave or SushiSwap or any of these other dog shit, um, you know, cryptocurrency yield farming schemes. Apologize for the language. Um, you know, being from Boston, it's just part of the vernacular, right? Um, and that they've come to understand yield is just tokens that are printed out of thin air. But yield actually is generated by providing a service that people want. It's providing economic value. And in the case of the Lightning Network, you're actually providing economic value. If you create, if you spin up a Lightning node and, and have several well-connected channels that are routing liquidity to and from, excuse me, then you could earn uh, a native yield on the Lightning Network. It's, it is a... It is an earned yield. It is not an unearned yield that's printed out of thin air. You're providing a service that people want. Now, in the infant stages of the Lightning Network, um, it's relatively simple to do this. If you've got, you know, you could spend time uh, on YouTube, on the internet, developing expertise in this field, and then slowly but surely allocating capital to a node, um, spinning up a whole host of channels and, and really connecting them very well, and then getting efficient at routing liquidity and earning a yield from that. But when it comes to the maturation of the Lightning Network through time, I think this is going to evolve into something called Lightning Banks. And I haven't coined this term. This is a term that's been thrown around quite a lot at several meetings, but my interpretation of the meaning, uh, interpretation of Lightning Bank is a large central entity, one node or several nodes um, that have several hundred or several thousand channels that are very, very well connected and help route liquidity very, very efficiently for the lowest possible price. 
I think as of right now, um, the, the individual has the ability to do that. But over time, as Lightning Network demand grows and the Lightning Network becomes more crowded, um, we're going to rely a lot on these central entities in order to process transactions. Now, the beautiful thing about this is unlike a, or a route liquidity rather, and an example of this is River Financial. I talked about them on the What Bitcoin Did Show with Peter McCormick, but they are one of the largest Lightning Network nodes. They have an extreme number of channels and they're very, very efficient at routing liquidity. They are sort of the proto version, if you will, of what will eventually emerge as uh, you know, a, a full-blown type of financial institution, a bank that has a business model solely around uh, Lightning Network channel, routing channel liquidity. Now, the beautiful thing about doing this is that when well, you hear the word centralization, you go, oh, no, that means censorship, censorship. But with the Lightning Network, there, there isn't necessarily an efficient way to do that. Sure, you could censor transactions or you could, if you're one of these large central entities, you could censor transactions or you could prevent uh, or you could charge unreasonably high base fees and fee rates to people who are trying to route liquidity. But guess what? The moment you do that, somebody else is going to say, OK, this is bunk. I've had enough. Who wants to donate to me so we can spin up a node? Let's fill it up with a whole bunch of liquidity and let's make it just as you know well-connected as this other guy. And so any bad actor on the network, other people have the ability, because the network is so infantile, to come in and say, no, we don't tolerate that. Let's go you know, lower base fee and fee rate than this guy, and, and we're going to open it up to everybody. So because the network is in such an infantile stage, any bad actor um, can be completely negated by somebody else coming in. Um, and, and spinning up a similar node, but with lower base fees and fee rates. And so naturally, because this is a free market unmanipulated, um, essentially the dynamic of new banks coming in, charging lower and lower fee rates and being more connected and offering, you know, and eventually we are going to get extremely good payment processing. And we already do, but more sizable payment processing ability to send 500, 1,000, maybe even at some, someday, I have no, I have no doubt in my mind that that'll be the case, uh, dollars uh, via the Lightning Network, via SATs, through these uh, extremely well-connected and intelligent entities. The reason this doesn't exist as prominently as it does now is because, again, the Lightning Network is so small, doesn't take a tremendous host of expertise, but as it gets more crowded, um, expertise is going to start filling and filling and filling the space and making those smaller operations less viable. But the beautiful thing about Lightning is that any bad actor who would want to come onto the network, um, if you're a bad actor, the only thing that you can do is provide a service that people want. That's it, right? You can't steal people's funds. Worst thing you could do um, is close up all your channels and then all of it gets settled up on the main chain anyway. So if you're you know, trying to steal money, you can't. The only way you can steal money is by coming out of the network, becoming a whale, getting a whole host of very, very well-connected channels, and then earning a native yield by providing a service that people want. So those are that's essentially what we have on network, Lightning Network right now is the, the ability to earn an, an active yield. And then the last portion of what I was saying is, is how I think that will evolve through time. Um, and I think, you know, again, the first iteration of it, the, a, a proto version of a lightning bank is, is what you see today with River Financial. Yeah, that's so freaking profound. I think that that's so ahead of the game. Like so many people, I mean, when you look at the lightning network right now in its, in its quote unquote infancy, it's like, you know, we use it pair to pair. I'll send you some money via cash app really quickly. You get it in under 10 minutes. What you're explaining, Joe, is like there's going to be possibly companies that utilize this this business model, right? 
where you have legitimate lightning banks that have a series of channels that they've kind of, you know, acquired over time. And it kind of helps people um, facilitate throughout the network to make channels faster and more efficient. And like you said, it's a stress test as the lightning network is used more, it becomes more ubiquitous in the space. Obviously scaling is going to make it faster and you'll be able to, uh, you know, send larger transactions. And, you know, this kind of leads into my, my next question, which is, um, you mentioned something in your conversation earlier about collateralized loans. And as we know, Michael Saylor caught some heat earlier this year for his kind of process of using micro strategy and collateralizing loans. But the people in the know understand that he did that for a reason. And there's like a game and a fulcrum that you utilize and leverage Bitcoin to kind of win. So my question to you is, Joe, is, do you think it's worth it to actually collateralize loans uh, for Bitcoin versus just buying it? straight out for sure i think if you're you know if you want to use bitcoin as collateral um for a loan i think you can there, there are several platforms that allow you to do it now and i think the key here for lenders and borrowers is over collateralization reason being um right now it, when it comes to credit everybody's extremely under collateralized like your loan to value ratio can be 150 200 300 um you know when it comes to credit that creates a lot of moral hazard because you may not even have the ability to pay back uh your your loan right you can't even pay back your loan if you liquidated all your collateral because the loan to value ratio is so damn high um loan is the value of the loan and then the value is the value of the underlying collateral so the higher the loan to value ratio is um you know the, the less of an ability your lender has to liquidate your collateral in the event of you're not being able to pay it back this is not good for borrowers because it creates uh, cheap borrowing conditions. Um, there are not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of skin in the game, no stakes whatsoever, um, versus over collateralized loans, right? Very low loan to value ratios where people, uh, lenders have the ability to liquidate collateral immediately. Um, and of course, uh, you know, if you, if you do not have the ability to repay, this is important with Bitcoin because Bitcoin is extremely volatile, but it also introduces responsibility back to credit markets. Um, I think moving into the future, credit is always going to exist. Um, I, I tend to believe that in order to, you know, people will, will always create something out of nothing when they can. But I think with Bitcoin, because it is so scarce, such a valuable resource, a scarce commodity in the eyes of not only the lender, but also the borrower, there's going to be a growing demand for over collateralized loans instead of under collateralized loans, because nobody wants to get liquidated on a loan. The reason people will start taking out loans is to actually pursue projects, ventures, capital uh, accrual, that will yield a positive return on top of their loan versus why they borrow now and why I've borrowed and why, uh, why I, I, other people I know have borrowed because it's extremely cheap. You could take out a 0% APR credit card when you're 21, everyone and their mother sends them to every single credit card company sends them to you in the mail. You could take them all out, 0% interest, $10,000 maximum credit, don't have to pay for 18 months. Are you serious? Are you kidding me? You're extending that line of credit to an 18 year old. That's absurd. I think with over collateralized lending on top of Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin's nature as a scarce asset necessitates borrowers and lenders to want over collateralization. And I think that is going to introduce a new level of responsibility to the way we conduct business in the modern world. And I think it is going to completely reshape how we think of credit. So, um, that, that those are essentially my thoughts there. Yeah. And you know, what's crazy is like uh, a lot of people are going to realize the value of Bitcoin if they do get liquidated, because it's like, 
the incentive is different, at least in my opinion. I mean, your credit score can be damaged in a traditional market, but it still gives you that chance to redeem yourself, even though it might take seven years. But with Bitcoin, because it's so inelastic, it's so scarce, there's only a finite amount out there. It's not in your best interest to um, overextend yourself or get yourself into a loan that you know you can't pay back because once that Bitcoin is liquidated and goes back into the market, you know, people are going to snatch that stuff up so quickly that if you understand Bitcoin and where this is going, you'd be best advised to really make wise financial decisions. And this is not financial advice on, you know, taking that risk of taking out a loan, even though it's super cheap. I would say, you know, a lot of people have gotten burnt, especially with the drawdown of the market lately with the price going from 60 to, you know, 18 or 20. A lot of people didn't expect that or didn't have enough savvy in the market to understand where this where this curve is going and where it's changing. So thank you, Joe, for kind of breaking that down. I learned something today just from listening to you. And my last question for you, Joe, which is probably the the best question of, of the show is what is the best piece of advice that you would give someone that's looking to um, getting into re researching and um, analyzing? Bitcoin? The best piece of advice that I would give you um, is to have an unwavering sense of curiosity, um, yep. unwavering curiosity, um, you know, this immovable optimism for the future, um, just an unrelenting desire to learn. Frankly, I think a lot of people might get caught up in the idea that uh, things are too hard to understand. Therefore, why should I try? But I think if you're doing something that you really, really, really enjoy, if you put your mind to it, and if you believe you put you, you can put your mind to it and accomplish it, nothing can stop you. Nothing can stand in your way. Before I did this, I ran two small painting businesses. Um, the first one that I did um, was $100,000 in size. The second one was $350,000 in size. I did this over the course of two summers. The reason I was able to achieve that is the same reason that I'm able to do what I am today and wake up and absolutely get after it. And that's because I have an internal locus of control, right? And I encourage everybody to have the same. It essentially means that no externality can stop you, right? If you have a vision and you take actionable steps to get there, nothing can stop you. You control the universe, essentially. It might sound cheesy, it might sound odd, but if you practice this, if you understand this, if you have this unwavering belief that you have a vision and you're going to put in the work to achieve it, nothing can stop you, right? You control all externalities, nothing can get in your way, you can do it. So have an unwavering sense of curiosity, um, constantly be finding people more intelligent than you to associate with, always be the dumbest guy in the room, right? Always ask the, the questions that people think are stupid, right? Build out your understanding shamelessly, be very, very humble, and good things will come, right? Put in the work, provide value, stay curious, and have fun. Most definitely. I love that. That's so inspiring. And, you know, in the words of Machiavelli, you know, fortune favors the bold. So, you know, you have to kind of be bold in this approach to, to Bitcoin and understand that this is we're so early in the space and that the people that are in this space now, like myself and yourself, Joe, we're kind of the risk takers. We're being bold and we're kind of putting ourselves out there to kind of learn about a digital asset that in my opinion, is going to change the world. And we're so early and we're like going to put ourselves in history 
almost for, you know, being humble and trying to just be a student of the game and learning as much as we can, networking as much as we can, and just trying to make Bitcoin better for everybody. So, you know, I think that that answer was perfect. And I hope that the audience listening, anybody that's looking to do research or analysis in Bitcoin and they want to be inspired by Joe, take a, a look at this episode and really um, learn some of the gems that Joe has given us today. Uh, Joe, so lastly, um, once again, thank you for being on a Bitcoin source, but give the world your social media handles and any uh, future endeavors that you want people to know before we wrap this up. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it was a total blast. I'll, I'll definitely come on again. This was a really, really fun conversation I had. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Consorti, uh, the same way the name is spelled in the title. And you could also follow uh, the Bitcoin layer, um, the Bitcoin There you will find our Substack page as well as our YouTube page. Um, we're also available on all audio platforms. We're a premium markets research publication covering Bitcoin through a global macro lens. We're trying to fold traditional finance, fixed income, money markets in with this asset as well on its way to monetizing uh, as a base layer reserve currency. So that's what we do. Um, that's what I'm involved in. That's where I can be found. Joe, thank you once again for being on the Bitcoin source. I really appreciated having this Bitcoin conversation with you. Have a good one. You too. Thanks. Oh, 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 oh